This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookings. Kia ora. welcome to Bookends with Moran Rout and Ruth Todd. And Moran, um, fiction today? Yes, absolutely. Um, I've been talking with Emma Neal from Otipoti, and um, she's she's somebody whose career I've I've watched and enjoyed for many years. She's done extraordinary things with her writing, and she now has a collection of short fiction out. She she's just written such a breadth of mm. yep. genre, hasn't she? Poetry, mm. novels. Mm. She's been the editor, editor of Landfall. Mm. Mm. Yep. Wonderful. Well, I've got someone who's sort of brand new from Wellington, um, Anne Hare, and she's written her um, debut novel, which is really a crime novel. Well, it is a crime novel, no doubt about that. Set in Wellington, and Wellington's an important character in the book, and it's really good. Anne Hare has studied music, literature, publishing and creative writing and been awarded an NZSA Hachette mentorship for the manuscript of The Leaning Man, her first novel. She works now as a school librarian and she has been editor for the New Zealand Poetry Society Anthology and much more. She's worked for the New Zealand Book Council and is a trustee for the Randall Cottage Writers' Trust and lives in Wellington. And uh, I have just finished this uh, excellent crime novel, The Leaning Man. And um, uh, I can't believe it's your first book, <laughs> really. Um, it's um, You've always had a strong interest in the literary world, and uh, yes. I'm so glad you've started writing at last. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. It's, um, I'm really pleased you enjoyed it. Um, it's, I have to confess, it's actually not my first manuscript. The first manuscript is in the bottom drawer, and there it will stay. Um, and it was that was one which I just kind of made all the mistakes that you meant to make, and I left it for a number of years. And then I decided, I thought, no, I want to try it again. And um, I I thought I'd try uh, try crime fiction. Basically, I just um, thought that was a, a good a good place to start. Well, stay with again, it. Because, stay with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I really I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the puzzle of it. And uh, the sort of the can I put a red herring in? Will it be too obvious? And uh, but the other thing too that I was really keen on, sort of exploring, I suppose, was the idea that uh, and people talk about this. They talk about putting a location as a character, and I wanted to have Wellington be that character. Um, I'm very fond of like um, Ian Rankin, uh, who uses Edinburgh, and Denise Miner, who's very Glaswegian, and. Uh, yeah, so I thought, I wonder if I can do that with Wellington. And I've had Wellingtonians say to me that I got it right, so I'm pleased about that. Yes, well, you're, uh, Paul Cleave has done that with Christchurch. Um, but I was, yeah, and with Christchurch as well. And Xander Simon does it with Otago. Otago, yes, and I yeah, really yeah, like yeah, exactly. that, yeah. uh, especially as I've worked in Wellington for several years and um, know the city well and love it. Um, right. So it did become a very real character for me, 
and uh, it's just um, it it provided you gave the atmosphere uh, gave the book atmosphere as um, the human characters were moving around in it it was always right. there and there were just little phrases um, that sort I that took me back <laughs> to the times right. when I was walking around the town around the city right oh good yes good. so um, Stella is our protagonist and lives um, has come home from London where she's been working for several years for her parents' 40th wedding anniversary and the celebrations are in full swing and mm-hmm. um, she catches up with one of her best friends probably her best friend Terry from uni days and um, is finding it really hard to fit in and they're very um, different kinds of people but uh, suddenly I think it was page 41 and I think I'm allowed to mention this because the real the story is really <laughs> based on this, uh, what's happened Terry is dead and um, the police are looking suicide, but Stella knows her friend too well, and she is determined that there is more to it than that. And her no way, her friend, when she met her at the party then that night, was um, happy and looking forward to meeting up again quickly, and and her phone is missing. Those are sort of the two things that um, yep. grab you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Stella's unsettled. She's... She sort of feels she's landed in a parallel universe without a map or being in a play, I think I'm quoting you, where everyone else uh, knew their lines, but she was always a page behind. I love that phrase. Now, um, what I loved about the characters, and there are many of them, um, that we really, you give the back pages to their character before you've started the book, we, we see little snippets of them and it helps to round the characters up very well. They don't just suddenly appear at this party and we go on from there. Um, you tell me lots more about each of the main characters and um, I, I, I did like that because um, sometimes characters are a little bit one-dimensional in crime novels, um, they don't seem to um, have a personal life at all. It's just oh, that's, that's, yeah, know. that's really great to hear because you know I know them in my head. Yes, they're all there, and I know who they are, and that, and the fact that that comes across on the page is it's really it's very reassuring to think that with a small amount of sort of painting of the picture that you've got a sense of the actual characters. Well, yes, uh, yeah. quite uh, quite an, an important sense really. Um, because Stella's fairly out there, and um, she's not going. She's been um, a detective in Wellington, and before she went to London, and and she's um, not going to be put off um, by the, especially one of the policemen who's involved in the in the case, and uh, who she knows is pretty useless, and and they don't get on at all, of course, no. <laughs> to say it mildly. So the other character that I absolutely loved was um, for me, the other main character was really um, Christoph Mad Dog he was called Mad Dog on the streets, he was homeless and uh, we have a little touch of his back um, pages and why he's homeless and um, I thought that um, that was, I mean that's one of the main themes really in the book isn't it about homeless people Yes, I think what I was interested in was the idea that um, it can be very easy to look at someone, anybody, and just assume you know their story and that they're useless or that they, you know, they're drug addicts or alcoholics or whatever and they ended up on a street. But you, 
you actually really don't know. And it's that idea that it can happen to any of us. It could. It's so easy that sort of if something goes wrong, then something else happens and something else happens. And you can, you know, it's very easy to spiral. And I'm not saying that, you know, everyone's going to end up homeless, but I just wanted him to be not what you would expect or what you might um, assume of someone uh, on the on the on the street when you when you see them, so um, yeah, and I've had I've had a number of people say that they really warmed to that character, mm. and I, yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. Yes, a talented violinist, and uh, his friends were, and he's not a fighter; he's not out to um, no. um, beat other people up um, at no. all, and he. Um, talks about St James Theatre. He loves that area of the city. He's got a friend in the library. He's been quite a cultured man. And uh, yeah. that's so important But to the story. But he also, um, his his wonderful friend, um, the um, Luthier... Um, Gus. Gus, yes. Gus, Augusta. Gusta, <laughs> yes. And... He's men's musical instruments, fixes them, and their friendship, somewhere he can go to when it's cold and he's hungry, yeah. and Gus um, supports him. And Gus and, and his friendship is so unlikely um, as a homeless person you would expect, but um, because they have this musical um, knowledge and skill between them, um, they become great friends, don't they? Yes, yeah. And I think it's that thing where because um, people do do help, you know, if there's somebody on the street that they might genuinely know, but doesn't mean to say that the person on the street necessarily wants help. I'm not saying that of everybody by any stretch of the imagination, but I wanted Mad Dog to be part of something but also to be very separate from it like he can't live in he can't live in the world he can't live in the world that he used to inhabit but he still lives so he has to he has to make do somehow and he does the best that he can with the help from a couple of people that he's he's friendly with yeah and as the pace of the novel builds um, very quickly and it's a real page turner <laughs> yes. and very quickly at the end there was so much happening I had to read it twice um, <laughs> to make sure I was with it but um, th- th- those passages with Gus and um, Christoph and passages with um, other people with Stella and Kate and um, Stella and Charlotte they slow the pace down and give you a chance to sort of catch up on what Stella's really wanting to do, but also show her personal life a lot more and her relationships, connections with people. There are so many connections in this book. I don't know how you did that. You connected so many um People. I'm not sure I know how I did it either. <laughs> well, it was very clever. It came all it came out very well. The yeah. other the other theme was the um, where Kate was singing at the club and dancing and uh, where um, Stella found out all sorts of things um, when she went to hear her sing and um, that became another main theme of the book. Um, uh, the young young women who are coming to New Zealand or being brought to New Zealand and um, the trade that's going on with um, yes. young women go, being very 
badly treated and brothels brothels setting up set up as a sort of a behind the scenes um, a real plight for those people and young yes. girls in the city itself. What, what interested me was I a couple of years ago I started hearing a lot about um, trafficking happening amongst. Um, Places like you know, sort of vineyards and orchard, you know, places like that. I'm ever thinking, goodness, that actually really happens here. And there's been restaurants where that, that's happened, and people have had their passports taken off. And they've all been adults. And um, and I just wanted to take the idea of trafficking a step further, and I wanted to have it happen in New Zealand because people sometimes think that we don't things don't happen here. Um, but in fact, things do happen here, and that was kind of a, a, an area that I was interested in just showing, I suppose. Yes. Well, um, and the leaning man, the title, that's intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's from the, um, that's from the, uh, the statue that's on the wharf. Yes. Um, the, the bronze statue, which I really, really love. I'm hugely fond of it. And, um, but also the idea that... Uh, um, mad dog leans as he walks and there's quite a little leaning going on I think in the yes. book but um, yeah yeah very clever so um, Anne Hare with her first crime novel The Leaning Man is a must read and it really adds to our um, building of um, so many fantastic crime writers in this country and with the Naomi Marsh Awards that we started about 11 years ago um, now it's wonderful to see this happening because it has made a huge difference. Um, so many people have um, started writing crime, and this is another first one. So, Anne, congratulations. And Thank you very uh, much. it's published by the Cuba Press, a must read. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. He wooed me many ways, tried everything from lending books to night dancing, blood starry with lager. We talked, yet it wasn't working. So he left the country, asking if he could keep in touch. His letters, handwritten, soon arrived. He laughs when I say this, but it was seduction by punctuation, as if each semicolon was someone leaning forward, head bubbling with the future, or perhaps an athlete leaping for the catch. Such elegance and rhythm. Bud and stalk, sun and moon, hook and sinker, a bottle that's popped its cork, or even egg and ecstatic sperm, pre-fusion. That was Autoporti writer Emma Neal reading from her first collection of short fiction and tall truths. It's called The Pink Jumpsuit. And Emma, that little piece, I think, sort of encapsulates the kind kind of magic you can conjure up with your writing because you're, you're you know, a poet. You're a poet, you're a novelist, you are an editor, you work with words all the time, and there they are, just beautifully capturing a huge amount in such a short space. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you, Moran. That was a wonderful, wonderful comment. Um, yeah, with, with that particular piece, it was um, something that grew out of it, sort of 
curiously enough, grew out of seeing my, my youngest son playing on the jungle gyms and just the shape that he made as he swung reminded me of the semicolon. And um, I kind of leapt off that image, that visual image, into um, into the short story, which um, was the shortest, is the shortest I've ever written, I think. And it was really challenging and um, and really fun as well to try and sort of figure out how much you can compress into such a small space and quite liberating um, to realise that, you know, um, brevity doesn't have to mean um, banality, I suppose. Um, you can you can have all kinds of layers in something very short still. Mm. How do you detach the part in you, or don't you, when you're working on a piece like that? <laughs> it's so, it's a prose poem, it's um, flash fiction, it's microfiction. Um, does it need a genre? Mm. That's a really good question. I think that with the longer forms, I probably do have to detach the poet more from from the prose writer because, you know, with a longer short story, um, I am looking at um, character development and narrative arc and trying to kind of keep the reader moving and compelled by each line as you go and have, um, you know, small plot surprises, um, small twists of of narrative, I suppose. Um, And so then you do have to be um, more aware of the kind of overall pace of the work rather than the the sort of um, embellishments and embroidery of of sound and and image. Um, But I I never want to let those go entirely because I think that kind of really descriptive, sensuous writing um, can be such a pleasure as well for the reader. Well, it's in your novels, so, so, yeah, it's part of you, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I suppose it is. I'm not not an Ernest Hemingway who writes kind of clipped, clipped, short, um, active, hard, verbal sentences. I I like to kind of um, meditate and and try and recreate the sensory experience um, on the page. Mm. I think I'm right in saying this is the first time you've had a collection of, of short fictions and tall tales. That's right, it is, yeah. Um, and that's partly because I think when I first started writing as a, a young, very young apprentice writer in my 20s, um, I did try short fiction, but most of it was really awful. <laughs> and I, I kind of decided that meant I couldn't write short stories rather than realising that that was all part of my apprenticeship and um, that I was learning um, learning technique on those stories and, and I should have probably just kept trying. Um, but I kind of ditched the form and, and just went into poetry and, and then much later novels. Mm, so but, what's brought you back to short fiction? Um, it's a number of things clustering together, I guess. Um, one thing was that I was lucky enough to get a commission from a journalist at the Otago Daily Times um, whose name was Dave Loffrey, and unfortunately we, we lost him about a year or two years ago. Um, but he he approached me because he had seen my other writing and he asked whether I would like to write a two-part piece for the ODT um, one summer as one of their kind of, you know, summer escapades, <laughs> I guess. And I, I was so kind of delighted to be approached by him that I didn't want to tell him that I didn't actually write short fiction. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I thought, you know, there was the lure of a fee. <laughs> and I thought... Um, well, I might just try it, and if it's a failure, he doesn't have to publish it, obviously. You know, I might as well just give it a shot. And um, it was a really interesting exercise, because knowing that it was going to be published in two parts meant that I had to think about where I might end the first piece, how I, you know, how I divide the series, and um, 
and think about anticipation and, and um, I guess, a switch in attention at the end of that first instalment. Um, so in a way, I was given a structure, if you like, you know, by being told it was going to be divided into two. And um, and I guess it kind of liberated something in me because I thought, well, this is actually great fun and, and trying to problem solve um, how you keep a reader interested in such a short space was, was a really interesting challenge. Um, so there was that that stimulus. But then um, when I was editing Landfall and reading so much excellent, high-quality New Zealand short fiction, um, I guess that kind of you know was a prompt as well. Um, I think just when you're immersed in something, you, you kind of... Well, I I wanted to try it. It's like wanting to join in with the big kids, you know, <laughs> and play with them. Um, and so, yeah, I started to write more short fiction after each issue was finished and, and sent away. And I had a little bit more free time and free headspace. Um, I started to find ideas just clustering. Mm. And there's, there's such a mixture on here. And each of the stories um, stands stands alone in a, in a sense it's because it's so um, memorable uh, the the characters in it um, sometimes it's very amusing it's droll it's dry and other times it's quite heart-wrenching the first the first um story in the book I found really really you know I had to stop and take a moment after it I don't even know how you say the title Ophelia, I think, is how you say it. Um, is, it a, is it a real word, does it? <clears throat> it is. Um, I first came across it when I was looking up Nordic sagas, and it's a, an ancient belief that um, there is a kind of, in a way I, I suppose you could call it an animal spirit that represents you um, or that's a part of you. Um, and, yeah, it's, um, it's a really interesting, eerie concept, isn't it? And mm. in, the, in, the, in the ancient sagas, often the philia is seen just before someone um, is about to die. So it's kind of a, it's a, kind of a herald of, of your fate, but it's also a deep part of you. Um, and I, oh, it's, <laughs> the way I came across that is actually because I was trying to write a novel um, around the same time that I was writing Billy Bird. I was actually working on another novel idea and it was going to involve a character who had um, postnatal psychosis and it all became very complicated and dark and I decided that actually um, I couldn't pursue that. You couldn't live um, with it for that long probably. Yeah, it was it was partly that and it was also that, that you know, all these ideas of somehow bringing in Norse mythology and um, the contemporary day just... I think I just had too much going on <laughs> yeah. and, and also was kind of um, becoming quite a lot more absorbed in the in the Billy Bird narrative. So I realised that what I did have, though, was going to make a short story. Um, and so that's where that, that arose from. And it's certainly a story that um, encourages the reader to stay because you get a taste of what what you're going to um, bring to the stories, that otherworldly, um, sometimes surreal uh, element into the stories. Before we go, um, Emma, I just wanted to touch on your time as, as an editor with Landfall because you've um, retired from that um, and 
now work freelance, but the possibly one of the last things you put out was this wonderful um, collection of landfall essay competition um, winners or notable ones called um, Strong Words Number 2. I remember talking to you about the first one. Um, there's such an appetite for this kind of writing, essays, I think. Mm. Mm. I think so too, and I think the fact that the the intake each time for this competition is just so brilliant. Um, and, you know, this is why the, the book has developed, because um, we had an excess of wonderful writing and, and, and awarding, you know, the top three places and, and a few highly commended um, places as well just didn't feel like it was representative enough of, of what wonderful writing was going on in the non-fiction field in New Zealand. Um, and actually, um, my very, very final task for for Landfall has been to recently judge the latest um, Landfall essay competition and those results will be out um, in a few weeks and again it was just overwhelming um, you know, the, the standard and I think the strong words too um, strong words number two I'm pretty sure they're going to have to have another <laughs> number three at some point because um, yeah the quality is just fantastic and the range of subjects is really interesting Um do you want me to run through a list of what? Uh, we possibly don't have time, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, every one of them is is absorbing, and as you say, every one of them takes this. You know, um, I was just rereading the one this morning about being white, being very white. Mm, by Tobias Buck, exit stage left. Yeah, a really interesting angle on how um, difference is, is treated in our culture. Um, and then there's the, you could almost sort of call it a companion essay in a way, by Nina Minya Powell's Tender Gardens, which is about being um, someone with Chinese and Malaysian and New Zealand heritage, um, raised in New Zealand and then living overseas. And, you know, all the kind of proliferation of comments and experiences she has had. Um, as a young woman, and yeah, oh, there's just there are so many. I just want to run down the whole content. I know, oh. I know. I would love you to, but I just have to tell people to buy this book um, because each essay will leave you, you know, thinking, um, musing, um, and and generally just overwhelmed, as you say, with the quality of the writing. Mm. And, and learning about all kinds of different subjects. Exactly, too. exactly. Yeah. How lucky we are. So thank you for your work with Landfall. This is a good opportunity to congratulate you on what a marvellous job you've done with the magazine over the years um, and for, uh, I think, probably initiating, you know, these collections of short um, essays. And oh, thank you very much, Maura. And I must must mention Rachel Scott as well as the publisher, <laughs> yes. um, uh, who has also retired, but she was actually the one who initiated the book idea. Um, so I, yeah. I'll hold hands with her on that. <laughs> well, you make a very strong pairing. And may I congratulate our local publisher, Quentin Wilson, for um, publishing The Pink Jumpsuit. Mm, he's been an amazingly versatile and... Um, supportive publisher, I think, in, you know, pretty difficult times for many people in the book industry. And he's just given such wonderful one-on-one -on -one attention. I think he's he's pretty remarkable. He certainly is. So 
Listeners, please look out for The Pink Jumpsuit, Short Fiction's Tall Truths by Emma Neal, published by Quentin Wilson Publishers, and Number Two Strong Words, The Best of the Landfall Essay Competition, selected by Emma Neal and published by Otago University Press. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. 